0: Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this specialist series, Explore How to Plan an Expedition, a series created for the Royal Geographical Society. I'm Matt Pycroft, an expedition specialist, filmmaker and photographer, and I've been going on expeditions under various banners for 15 years. I also sit on the Council of the RGS. Episode 7 focuses on ethical fieldwork. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Alistair Harris on the current state of scientific research and academia, the moral dilemma around travelling for fieldwork and expeditions, and the need for real data. Al also speaks passionately and thoughtfully about the impact of conservation goals on communities, both good and bad, and the importance of meaningful partnerships and local action. Al is the founder of Blue Ventures, a charity focused on locally-led marine conservation. He holds a PhD in tropical marine ecology, and his work focuses on developing scalable solutions to marine environmental challenges in a way which makes sense to coastal communities. He's visited some of the world's remotest and wildest coasts, and has been involved in multiple RGS-supported fieldwork expeditions. Finally, if you're looking for support with planning your own expedition or field research project, then head to rgs.org to begin the journey. Right, let's get started with episode 7 of How to Plan an Expedition. So, please could you begin by just introducing yourself, tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to
1: you. Sure. My name's Alistair Harris. I am a marine biologist by training. By trade, I'm a social entrepreneur. I run an organization that grew out of my first RGS-funded expedition in 2001. Um, So we work to rebuild fisheries with coastal communities all around the world. That human-centered approach to ocean conservation grew out of some of what I learned on my first RGS-funded missions to countries that are indescribably different to, to everything I'd experienced until that first expedition.
0: And by way of context, could you just give me a brief um, history of your expedition and in inverted commas background or your experience overseas? Sure.
1: So I, um, I was an undergrad studying zoology in Edinburgh with a very unhealthy interest in scuba diving and in coral reefs. And I heard about this thing called an expedition. And I came on a night bus from Edinburgh down to London, got here, worse for wear, at a thing called Explore, must have been Explore, 1999 maybe, that gives you a sense of how old I am, um, or maybe 2000, and, and I thought, wow, this is incredible. You know, these people are going for it. These people are, are going to go and, you know, all the, all the things I'd dreamt of and seen in my books of reefs and ecosystems that, you know, I just couldn't see on the Isle of Skye sky were within reach. If I followed this rule book from this weekend. So I um I drank the Kool-Aid and I wrote up the, the the vision. And the vision was to go to an island called Madagascar, which everybody had heard of from a terrestrial perspective, because it's the hottest of the hot global biodiversity hotspots, you know, unparalleled species richness, devastating habitat loss, indescribable poverty that's got worse pretty much every year since independence. But the marine realm around Africa's longest coastline was was relatively undescribed pretty much since since the 70s. And I thought of combining that lack of data with my 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 enthusiasm for reckless diving pursuits. And and the RGS bought it, as did the university, and made a, you know, a really reckless decision to back us and sent us on our way, where we achieved nothing of any scientific value, but enormous amount of kind of personal discovery about what not to do when managing a project, managing a team, leading a team. We very nearly killed ourselves multiple times. And I think it left a very profound impression on me, Um, so much so that i repeated it the following year, and then the following year, and then from another university, and then eventually started combining forces of these trips from Oxford and Edinburgh uh, under the guise of various acronyms to consolidate investment in certain areas where we could build up some infrastructure to do some serious underwater research. And the legacy of that was was a small nonprofit, which which I set up while studying my DPhil, um at Oxford, and then that was called Blue Ventures. Um, I needed a uh, a business engine to, to fund it because no one in their right mind would keep doing what the RGS had done and giving us free money. So we funded it, me and a, uh, a friend of mine from Edinburgh, through holidays, uh, expeditions, we called them. But, you know, tourism, conservation tourism, highly adventurous expeditionary tourism, you know, six week trips in the middle of nowhere and they were, you know, super high risk looking back on it. Um, but that generated enough cash flow to fund some interesting work. But I think what that most what what, what that taught us most of all was was the limitation of the scientific method as, you know, I'd been Uh, indoctrinated in in my graduate work and my undergraduate work, namely that from the data that we as a bunch of outsiders collect and the articles that we clumsily pull together will flow recommendations that will miraculously transform to behavior change and conservation policy reform, yada, 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 the kind of blithe optimism that you write in the last two lines of your your thesis, which no one ever genuinely believes will happen. And lo and behold, of course no one's reading this stuff and change doesn't happen and poverty continues and the the collapse of these ecosystems um is entirely uninfluenced by this data and all that we're doing. And yet back here in the UK we're fettered as these explorers, you know, these I remember standing on the stage a few years later, you know, rapturous applause. But we'd achieved nothing. Nothing that meant anything for these ecosystems for these people who were living in 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 poverty. And, and so Blue Ventures' work started to really kind of chip away at the dysfunction that was the prevailing approach to ocean conservation in, as we saw it in Africa in the Western Indian Ocean, which was, you know, very much top-down, biodiversity-led, data-driven prioritization based purely on how many fish and what color they were, rather than humanitarian objectives, you know, and in the Western Indian Ocean, there's dozens of millions of people, let's say 60 million people live in that region, you know, a staggering proportion of them depend on the sea for survival. Not in the same way that we think about, you know, ocean reliance here in the UK, where there are fewer people fishing than work in Harrods around the corner, you know, but in a fundamentally a total reliance for, for, for food, for income, for for cultural identity. 100 million people, the FAO's latest report, depend on what we call small-scale fishing, feed over a billion people. These are some of the poorest and most marginalized people on earth. They live a well the south. They're on the front lines of climate breakdown. And historically, they've been left out of the kind of conservation decision-making process. So what Blue Ventures then did was try to invert the kind of prevailing approach to conservation and start with community and customary management systems, which we borrowed from from, from some terrestrial movements in, in inland in Madagascar. And we're inspired very much by what we'd learned from Polynesia. And that led to a movement of what we now call local management that's been growing for the last twenty years around that region and, and latterly further afield. We're not the only people doing this, of course, but now human rights and social justice sit very much at the heart of ocean conservation. And that yeah, that grew out of, you know, an, an idea that was was inspired here.
0: Why does human rights and social justice need to sit at the heart of ocean conservation? Why can it not just be for the benefit of the ocean? Um, Because the only way we can restore life in the
1: sea is through protecting it, by conserving it, But there are very few places, with the exception of maybe the British Overseas Territories, the French. You know, these large, empty expanses of oceans that are uninhabited are not representative of most of humanity's relationship with the ocean. The future of the ocean will play out, of life in the ocean, will play out around populous continental coastlines, which are generally poor, hot and getting hotter, tropical and subtropical. And these are regions where, you know, we need to work with rather than against people. No one has a greater interest in, in rebuilding fisheries and restoring ocean life than people that depend on nature. So it's paradoxical that, you know, this very neo-colonial in- enterprise of conservation has marginalized the very people who count on its success. I mean, how could we have got it so wrong? That is you know, the backstory to the world that I work in. And that's, that tide has changed, and now we very much see even the biggest voices in conservation putting people at the core in the design process and locally-led conservation. But very much it's about ensuring that, that, that the design is fundament, has, fundamentally has the interests of, of the biggest group of ocean users, who we call euphemistically small-scale fishers. There's nothing small about them apart from the size of the canoes um, in a place like Madagascar. Madagascar is representative of many, you know, low-income coastal states in the tropics.
0: (laughs) I, I think it would be hard to argue that you weren't passionate about this. But it also, if I may say so, and you're welcome to disagree with me, very welcome, you seem quite angry about this. Do you... What do you think about the state of scientific research, conservation... The conversation that we're having around these places and the way we're looking after our planet and all of the good work we're doing, expeditions, future field work, how do you feel about it?
1: I think if I come across as as, as angry about the state of the world's oceans, it's, it's, it's an anger at the injustice that continues to prevent pragmatic local action to defend the seas. The biggest group of ocean users by far, who we call small-scale fishers, who have the biggest interest in the success of our movement, who have the most at stake, who have the most ecological knowledge, far greater than me with, you know, graduate degrees and PhDs, you know, traditional knowledge that we don't value, have not had a seat at the table in thinking about how we, how we plan, how we zone protection of the ocean, conservation of the ocean, the so-called blue economy. And we urgently need to bring them in until we can tackle the injustice that continues to give, for example, a European fishing vessel fishing off the coast of Madagascar more legal right to fish there, more recognized access than a traditional fisher from that country who's lived there, whose family's lived there for hundreds of years, you know, we're we're far off the mark. Until we can address the normalization of mobile bottom gears around coasts all over the world, the biggest fishing gear type in terms of production, in terms of the amount that's pulled out the ocean, is bottom trawling. You know, that is fundamentally incompatible with the needs of a food-insecure planet with net zero. It's fundamentally reliant on subsidies. You know, there's a lot of injustice and madness at the heart of, uh, of, of how we're using our seas. How does that relate to my history as a, as a marine ecologist? I think... You know i was i I was very much schooled in the view in the world that you know learn to count stuff, learn to identify two hundred and forty three species of you know this fish, these fish and and you know that is what that is the that is the solution. those publications will will affect change well no they won't, and if a fraction of the amount of money that had been poured into uh this you know really indulgent research, which is you know wonderful to do, I've been on these cruises, I've counted these species, you know, I'm an expert in corals, you know, it's wonderful. If a fraction of that resource that had been spent on me zooming around the world on cruise ships counting fish was spent on tackling some of these injustices that sit at the core of the ocean emergency, then we might, our oceans might be better placed to withstand the thermal stress that's now unfolding, that we're now seeing all
0: over the world as we enter a massive El Nino. So, given everything you're saying, and given that the people who are listening to this are probably passionate outdoors people, maybe early research, um, academics, scientists, etc. Would you advocate traveling for research purposes and for expeditions?
1: I think that there's always been a moral imperative to, to recognize our privilege as beneficiaries of the incredible opportunity that is presented itself presents itself with any association with, for example, you know, a, a British university with expedition funds or the Royal Geographical Society. So we've always, and the, this institution has always advocated for, you know, local partnerships, strong investment in local leadership, and ensuring that research isn't parachute science or extractive or purely for the purposes of, you know, perpetuating someone's academic career in the North... I think, if anything, that has become more shrill, more urgent, more immediate. When I was on my very first expedition to Madagascar, I was struck by many things about some of the local scientists that we worked with. Firstly, their incredible ecological knowledge. You know, there was me with the best education that, that a university could give anywhere in the world, struggling to tell two species of coral apart, and here these guys could do it just, you know, at 20 meters um, but secondly, some of them, some of the, the the Madagascar's National Marine Institute at the time had no internet connection. You know that wasn't perhaps unusual back in two thousand. Didn't have a boat, had an engine but no fuel for it. You know it was it, it and 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 some of the best ecologists couldn't swim. You know so the the things that I could have done as a twenty one year old that would have really made a difference weren't going out there and trying to do the work myself. It would have been providing <laughs> training in safety at sea, um, in boat engine maintenance, um, in you know really addressing some of the you know less esoteric questions that would have enabled national scientists to move forward faster. Happily, one of those local partners is now the director general of the National Ministry of Fisheries, and you know it's, we've we've had very long-standing relationships with with that institute over the last twenty years um, and many other. Um, organizations like that but I think we need to think much more rigorously about what value we are adding now of course there's enormous personal value and that's you know what the privilege that goes with these trips it's how we learn to lead it's how we learn how not to lead it's how we learn to manage projects big and small it's how we learn risks it's how we learn to, to, to motivate people you know the value that I have gained from these trips has got me where I am today
0: I'm listening, and I hear you, and I think to to what extent do you think there's kind of a shifting baseline syndrome in the global north around well, that's what everybody else does, so I deserve to as well you know i'm I'm an early stage academic, I want to go and do two weeks in Borneo to go and count orchids, and I feel justified in doing that because that's what we do on our career journey. How do we create a shift and the change away from the established norm without without limiting? the training, the teaching, the development of young academics and young people who want to go out and do what you did and now do? Um,
1: 20 years ago, an understanding of Malaysian botany and, you know, that, that orchid knowledge that would be needed, you know, there was an assumption that the experts would probably be found at Kew. There was an assumption that we would need to bring in that kind of Taxonomic expertise—that's no longer the case. I would encourage a botanist. You know, nowadays we have to. It's in, it encumbered on us to fix what's utterly broken in our own backyard. The 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 complete ruination of British inshore marine ecology should be a starting point for an aspiring British marine ecologist, rather than doing what I did and flying to the other side of the world, having those difficult conversations with <laughs> with community leaders here in the UK, rather than perhaps assuming that 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 all of the challenges that need to be fixed are in the hotter more more species rich parts of the world that's not to say that those trips shouldn't happen but i think our own understanding of how utterly broken our own ecology and natural environment here in the uk is for example has advanced enormously in the two decades since i did those expeditions you know i think you know our own ecological literacy here about the impact of the Common Agricultural Policy, about the impact of, of of industrial agriculture at scale in shifting the baseline of our understanding on what normal and natural ecology, marine and terrestrial, is in Northern Europe um, has transformed a lot. And as a result, there are many more opportunities now, domestically, than there are in Borneo. Some of the most incredible, the most incredible wildlife experiences I've ever had, and I've dived all over the world, and I've, you know have been incredibly lucky to see what I've seen. The most incredible experiences by a country mile have been in the UK. Whether that's orcas off St Kilda, whether that's blue sharks off the South Coast, you know, and that's just because of persistence and because of, you know, the dogged pursuit of these, <laughs> of these rare encounters, but when they happen. And it's, it, it gives me an indication of how much we've lost here that one didn't need to use to fly to... <laughs> to, to Sabah to see extraordinary abundance
0: in the ocean. But how much do you think that comes down to a communication failure? Because I think I've certainly been guilty of this, particularly as a younger man, of looking at the far reaches of our planet, in big inverted commas, and thinking, well, that's where I want to go to tell those stories. I want to go there to see those things. But actually, as you're pointing out, Britain, the British Isles, UK is a special place. We rank 189th. Um, in terms of biodiversity globally, we're a massively depleted country in almost every way in terms of our um, biodiversity, nature, ecology. Are you suggesting that there's actually great joy and purpose to be found in working on problems, crises, research close to home that could still be exciting, adventurous, potentially even expeditions? And transformational and can start new movements. I mean, if you look at what's happening with, for example,
1: I'm heavily involved in the work uh, of a charity that's bringing beavers back to the UK, for example, and the impact that we're seeing in the restoration of watersheds as a result of the the <laughs> the arrival of a species that belongs here and is 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 an utterly extraordinary ecosystem engineer and transforms everything but also the social challenges that come with that and understanding how dealing with, commu- working with communities, working with different farmers, people who might not have the same interests that the nature conservation community might have. All of those conversations can be had here. If you look at the impacts of the community of Aaron Seabed Trust, what it's doing in restoring the seabed in, uh, at the bottom of the Clyde, it's no different to the work that we've been inspired by in Fiji and Polynesia and Sulawesi and Mozambique in terms of giving power back to communities through a bylaw in Scotland, through a customary social code in Madagascar. Pretty much the same thing. Local, secure local rights, voluntary, informal perhaps, but within which nature has given some breathing space to recover, amazing data, inspiring to communities to raise the bar, push it further and raising um, expectations and understanding of what conservation can achieve. So yes, I think our understanding of what we can achieve here um, has been completely... It, it's, I, I'm as excited by the potential for conservation domestically and in, 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 in Europe now as I was 20 years ago when I first went to Madagascar.
0: But it's, it's, it's not paradoxical, but it's, I guess that's the, the beauty of... Being slightly older, having experienced these things, having done it, I often struggle with that privilege of saying, well, I've traveled to six continents multiple times over the last 15 years and done the thing that I do. And it's very difficult for me to now argue that other people should not do that because I have. I've taken, I would guess, 300 flights over the course of my life. How can we sit here, you and I, two white men, British, and say, don't do this anymore. You can't do it. It's not acceptable.
1: I I, I certainly wouldn't say that you can't do that, but I think we now need to think in a far more meaningful way about the social purpose and the longer-term contribution that we now recognize there is a far more important moral imperative than we ever recognized or gave time for consideration for 20 years ago. Yes, of course, we always valued partnerships, twinning roles, capacity building, scholarships. We did all of those things 20 years ago, but now we have to recognize the the opportunity that expeditions present to shift resource to the south, to build partnerships that will not only send us to Borneo, but perhaps send some people from local institutions to study back here and to reciprocate and to develop those meaningful connections. I actually think it means spending, it means longer expeditions. It means a lot more investment in language at the start. You know, no more eight-week, 12-week trips, but I think, you know, to be to make a meaningful contribution now. I think you know one needs to be fully conversant in local languages and dialects and to be able to build those partnerships in the long term.
0: I mean, it, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems you have quite strong views on modern academia and how it serves the world or doesn't. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, I work night and day in a sector that's desperately fighting a battle to lose more slowly against a climate emergency that is... Is almost—it's too much to comprehend most of the time in terms of the, what the data are telling us. And we have years, not decades, to save the species that we're working with. Not just because of their their value as species, which is of course important, but um, because they're the cornerstone of food security for 100 million people. Right? This is you know, <laughs> and we work with these people. Um, in around 700 communities in 16 countries, you know, and, and we see what climate vulnerability means. And we know what we need to do to shore up that resilience. And it involves difficult conversations with vested interests. It involves securing the access rights of marginalized populations. None of this is rocket science. It's really prosaic, but it's bloody hard. And it requires boots on the ground I'm only I'm only cynical about you know the role that academia has had in applied conservation science, right? So you know I mean <laughs> there's there's you know the, the, the academic model is incredibly important for for just about everything that we need on we de- we depend on whether it's medicine or physics or chemistry or just about everything that's underpinning technology. But when it's three seconds to midnight on the doomsday clock and we know what we need to do to give those ecosystems a fighting chance of survival against the thermal stresses that are now unfolding and the climatic stresses and the cyclonic activity or whatever, studying the sex life of a butterfly fish just seems delusional to me. And calling it conservation science. Yeah. Because nothing that that research output will tell us will affect the course of action that a frontline conservationist or community needs to take to safeguard that butterfly fish, irrespective of its biology. And, you know, that's a difficult conversation for us to have, you know, I mean, that's almost, that's highly irreverent, what I've just said, the pursuit of knowledge for knowledge's sake in a climate emergency, now in some areas now, we've just got to, okay, we... If there's resource to, to, to bring to this fight, it has to go to the front line and it has to go to those communities that have been starved of resource in a, in a sector that has enriched and benefited largely absent northern organizations
0: to deliver a, you know, sanitized, top-down model of conservation. And do you think we need to take almost like, I hate to use the analogy, but almost like a wartime approach to what we're currently facing you know strip back everything that is superfluous of course but how do you do that really how do you get people to do that
1: well you could come and see what we do as an organization for a start we're a pragmatic delivery focused organization and where we can't do the work ourselves we get as much funding unrestricted similar to rgs support actually to proximate local organizations who would probably be deemed unfundable by most philanthropic organisations because they haven't got five years of audited accounts and you know certainly can't speak English or respond to an email, um, but they have everything that we know are the success factors in working with a community to effect change in how people are fishing and using the ocean, um, and that is they're actually there. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's rarely rarely the case in conservation. They're credible. They've got their finger on the pulse of what's happening in that community. They're locally led. They recognize the role of women in fisheries and in the supply chain in our sector and so on.
0: And so I'd like to put you under a bit of gentle pressure deliberately to play devil's advocate and say, you know, people out there who want to undertake, as they see it, interesting journeys to go and experience parts of the world and do some good, how can they do that in a way that you would deem morally and ethically sound? I think it
1: starts by developing meaningful partnerships with local organizations, the legitimate local actors that should be delivering this work in a, you know, in a world that didn't require people flying all over the world to make change happen. And I think, perhaps in my response, to make change happen, I think the requirement to have a meaningful outcome is much more... Is, is much more present than purely the, the voyage of personal discovery because I don't think that's necessarily acceptable. Now, of course, tourism is, will always exist and tourism is important and educational tourism is, is an inherently good thing. And if you want to indulge in a, a expeditionary tourism, mean, there's a reason that I called the expeditions business that was Blue Ventures a tourism company. You know, that's what it was. You know, it was a tourism business. It lived to generate profit. Our clients, so-called volunteers, did some good work. They spent thousands of hours counting fish um, and collected some amazing data which formed the foundation of zoning plans for some of the first protected areas, locally managed marine areas in the region. But ultimately it was a business. The primary purpose was to keep the lights on, generate cash flow, to enable an organization to exist and work with communities to do something way more progressive. I think the conservation and environmental sector probably has to to look itself in the mirror and, and, and... rein in very, very significantly. COVID helped us do that, helped normalize digital working, but certainly digital um, emissions are, are, are way too high. If I could go back to your earlier question about what does it mean, what does this requirement to give more back? 2001, my interest in planning an expedition was motivated by ecology and what I saw as a data gap on the map Pursuit of meaningful partnerships, whilst a significant part of our investment and budget in the expedition, was an afterthought. It wasn't the guiding narrative, it wasn't the primary justification. Indeed, I didn't have a, have a conversation or a phone call with anyone from the Institut Heliotique, the National Marine Institute in Madagascar, until I was in the country. By which time I'd already had a pretty advanced idea of you know the problem that needed to be addressed by my research. Happily, I think we're now in a in an era, thanks to email exists now. It wasn't particularly good then, where we we must have those conversations and we have to recognise that we go to these places at the invitation of those local partners rather than at our request. And it's through you know we we can. I used to. Stay up half the night in the in the in the university computer lab, hammering away at you know one of six whirring machines in the old library in Edinburgh to try to you know work out what the data you know and it was still photocopiers for publications. You know, digital immediate communications mean I can now be in touch with you know the minister of fisheries in Guinea Bissau probably tomorrow, having never even been there, and find out what he thinks is the priority for mangrove conservation, whether it's the Bijagos Archipelago or the Rio Grande de Buba, you know, I, he will tell me. And, you know, that response. So it's actually a lot easier for us to develop those partnerships, but they need to be front and center in the planning process. And I think that's what's shifted, is the knowledge that this isn't an entitlement. You know, this, is, this isn't something that, you know, we're, we're given. We have to earn that respect and, 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 and co-design a mission with local organizations, local partners, front and center, that is really about working out how the incredible resource and opportunity that we bring from this institution
0: can add value in a world that's incredibly unequal and unjust. And as we start to draw this to a conclusion, it sounds like what you're saying, if one is considering planning an expedition for scientific gain, really consider at the absolute core of it what is the purpose what is the use to humanity given everything we're currently facing so
1: november i think it was 1999 night bus down from edinburgh what i what i was thinking about on that journey as i came to explore was you know how can i really have uh, organize an expedition an idea that is going to be absolutely transformative and have a huge impact on science and ecology and marine ecology in the Western Indian Ocean, preferably Southern Madagascar. At no point in that conversation was I asking myself, how can I make a lasting contribution to the local institutions that can't do themselves, even though they're living and based alongside that very coral reef, what I'm talking about doing from Scotland. So I think that, 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 that today on that night bus, you know, I'd have to be you know, asking that second question, you know, how can I use this privilege... How can I use this opportunity? How can I use this funding? How can I use this, you know, amazing 4G connection in my pocket to, you know, really tackle some of these challenges that have left an institution in the south of Madagascar that's on the front lines of climate change without the resources to do this work? How can I play a role in bringing about the change that will support local scientists and in turn develop some extraordinary relationships that will be with me for the rest of my life? So it's a fundamental reframing of how we go about planning expeditions away from, you know, what can this expedition do for me and my career, but rather how can I use this opportunity to tackle some of these global emergencies, which are emergencies, and in doing so, arguably benefit myself even more.
0: Yeah, I'd actually say that's an incredibly positive, hopeful and powerful way to end this. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get started with planning your own expeditional field research project, head to rgs.org. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced and edited by Laura Jaycock for Terra Incognita Publishing, and Shane Windsor and Laura Melville for the Royal Geographical Society.